I want to take as my text this morning that short and what some might say a rather strange text from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 through 31. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1136. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 through 31. If you'd notice with me, beginning at verse 29, and Paul says, This is what I mean, brothers, brothers and sisters. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives or husbands, as the case may be, live as though they had none. And those who mourn as if they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. This morning I want to talk about embracing the believer's perspective on temporal things. The believer's perspective on temporal things. Now by temporal things we mean things that exist now but won't always exist. And things that certainly will not exist in the age to come. And embracing the believer's perspective means treating those things as they truly are. Not as ultimate things but as the temporal things that they truly are. And Paul mentions a few of these things in our text. In fact, he mentions five of them. And the first is marriage, interestingly enough. Notice again verse 29. And this, I, this is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The appointed time has grown very short. And from now on, let those who have wives or husbands live as though they had none. And so Paul says that marriage is a temporal thing and it should be treated as such. Paul says that, uh, that this is even more true given the fact that the time between now and when God makes all things new has grown all the shorter. And that this world, as he says in verse 31, is passing away. Indeed, in another passage, Paul says, in fact, in this same letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, it, 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 it is us on whom the end of the ages has come. And so Paul says that even marriage is a temporal thing and should be treated as such. And this is so because in the age to come, there will be no marriage. Now, to some, that might seem an unhappy thought, and to others, perhaps a relief. But it is true nonetheless. Um, in fact, um, it is somebody once said that uh, marriage is like a fly on the, on the uh, window. And those who are on the outside want to get in, and those who are on the inside want to get out. You've seen a fly on the window. But this is what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30. For in the resurrection, those who enter the kingdom of God will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but will be like the angels in heaven. 
And so Paul says in verse 29, But this I say, brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown very short when the kingdom will come. And so, from now on, let those who have wives or husbands live as though they had none. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, those with wives or husbands should not only focus on their marriage. And so what's Paul saying in all of this? Well, Paul is saying that if marriage is only a temporal thing, and if there is no marriage in the kingdom, in, in the age to come, we should, even if we are married, we should be preparing ourselves as a first and primary concern. We should be preparing ourselves for that coming kingdom. Indeed, it was Jesus who said famously, Seek what? Seek first the kingdom of God. And ideally, if you're married and both spouses are believers, then they will be seeking God's kingdom first together. Seeking together what they both know is a thing that is even greater than the marriage that they share. Indeed, Tertullian in the second century wrote this. He says, what a blessing is the marriage of two believers with one hope, one discipline, servants of the same master. Together they offer up their prayers. Together they lie in the dust. Together they keep their fasts, teaching each other, exhorting each other, holding up one another. They are together in God's church, together at God's feast, the Holy Communion together in persecutions, together in God's consolation, and Christ sees it and rejoices. And so that's the first thing. Marriage is a temporal thing and should be treated as such. Understanding what it really is. In fact, if you really understand what it really is, then you'll be even a better spouse than perhaps you are now. The second thing that Paul mentions is suffering. Notice again, verse 30 in the first part. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Or keeping in context, if you like, putting it this way. And from now on, let those who mourn live as though they were not mourning. And so Paul says that sorrow is a temporal thing. And should be treated as such. Indeed, it was Jesus himself who famously said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that comfort will come quickly, more quickly than perhaps we think. And John, in his grand revelation of what life will be like for the faithful in the kingdom yet to come, wrote this, Revelation 7, beginning at verse 14. These are the ones coming out of great tribulation, great sorrow, which results in great mourning. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, and therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear 
from their eyes. It was John Bunyan who wrote in his famous Pilgrim's Progress, quote, the bitter must come before the sweet, and that also will make the sweet all the sweeter. Perhaps this is what Paul was thinking about when he wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. And so he says, we do not lose heart. <laughs> Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, temporal sorrow and mourning, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal, a never-ending weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so that's the second thing. Sorrow is a temporal thing and should be treated as such. Thirdly, Paul mentions rejoicing, and presumably what Paul is referring to here is joy that results because, you know, everything's going your way, which is usually when we do rejoice. You remember that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, but that's a joy that transcends all circumstances. That's the joy that makes the persecuted church sing praises or Paul and Silas after they had been beaten and imprisoned and their feet were placed in the stalks and at midnight Paul said to Silas, let's sing a hymn. And Silas says, what a good idea. <laughs> He's not talking about that kind of rejoicing. But rejoicing that results from, you know, Things going just the way you like. Indeed, notice um, verse 30 in the second part there. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, or if you like, and from now on let those who rejoice live as though they were not rejoicing. And so, if you like, Paul is saying that success and the joy that it produces is a temporal thing, and it should be treated as such. John Burke in his book Soul Revolution wrote this, what's life really all about if all our worldly achievements get stripped away in a moment? And then he asks the question, God, what is success to you? This made me think of what someone else has written, quote, God is interested in who you are. God is interested in your character, which is, in fact is the only thing you really possess. Indeed, you bring nothing into this world, and in the end you will take nothing out of it except your character. God doesn't really care where you live or what you do for a living or what you have, but he does care about who you are as a person. In fact, according to Jesus, God is really only looking for two things in you. Goodness and faithfulness. And those two things are things one seldom hears mentioned in the broader culture. And the writer asks, I wonder why. And if this is so, then Paul is right that success and the joy that it produces 
is a temporal thing and should be treated as such. The fourth thing that Paul mentions, and this seems to be very closely related to the third, is that buying and owning is a temporal thing and should be treated as such. Notice in that last part of verse 30, and those who buy as though they had no goods, or if you like, and from now on let those who buy live as though they owned nothing. Which, by the way, in the end is God's honest truth. What did Paul write famously in 1 Timothy chapter 6? And beginning at verse 6, he said, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment, isn't that what we're all seeking? And oftentimes pursuing it in things that we buy. And we have to keep on buying more because, isn't it, what is it about those things you buy and you feel so pleased? And even sometimes the next day, you're not nearly pleased as you were the day before. But Paul wrote, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And you might say, Phew, if all I had was food and clothing. And yet, it's hard to escape the contentment expressed by the Apostle Paul. So what is it that you want? A lot of things? Or the contentment that you live in pursuit of? Reminding me of something that Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote. He said, quote, the constant desire to have still more things and still a better life, so-called, and the never-ending struggle to obtain them has imprinted many Western faces with worry and even depression, though it is customary to try and hide <laughs> such feelings. which reminded me again of something that John Burke wrote in his book, So Revolution. He said, no human being or no material thing can satisfy our deepest longings because God has hardwired us for himself. Which reminds us of Pascal's dictum that within every one of us is a God-shaped hole. And we put the person, the spouse, the lover, the car, the job, the house, the vacation, the boat, the education. And none of them satisfy because the hole we're trying to fill is God-shaped. And nothing can fill it but God. And so Paul says that buying and owning is a temporal thing and should be treated as such. Finally, Paul says that engagement in the world, as it now is, is a temporal thing, and should be treated as such. Indeed, notice again that first part of verse 31, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Or if you like, and from now on, let those who deal with the world live as though they had no dealings with it. And then Paul adds in verse 31, for the present form of this world 
is passing away. Or as Peterson puts it in the message, the world as you see it now is on its way out. Which reminds us of the famous words of John. In fact, he was mentioned in our gospel reading. John, the son of Zebedee, who had a brother called James. He wrote this in his first letter to the churches to which he was writing. And do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God <laughs> abides forever. That's you and your character. So how about you? Someone has written this, quote, cultural Christians actively pursue the values of the culture as their primary concern. Cultural Christians. And then add kingdom values and practices only to the extent that they find them personally pleasing and useful to the accomplishing of their primary purpose. Which is the world. <laughs> which is passing away. True disciples, on the other hand, actively pursue the values of the kingdom as their primary concern. And then the culture, because it's, in, in, it's inescapable. And only to the extent that it does not impede or redirect them from their primary concern, which is the kingdom of God. And that's what every church-going person must decide whether I will be a cultural Christian or a true disciple, whether I will live for temporal things or eternal things. And no one can make that decision for you, but you. Embracing the believer's perspective on temporal things. Let us pray. The language is so clear if we're paying attention. Jesus said, and occupy till I come. And the apostles said, and we are pilgrims on a journey, on a pilgrimage. And this is not our home. Our citizen is, citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior. Whom when we see him, we will be like him. For we shall see him as he truly is. But um, the world calls, Lord. And it calls loudly, oftentimes, because it wants us to buy something. And they promise us that they have our best interest in mind. We're here for you. And it'll only cost you $99.95. But you offer us what... You have for free. You just say, trust in me. Walk in my ways. Step off of the broad road that leads to destruction and step onto the narrow road that leads to life and you'll never be unsatisfied. 
And even your sorrows will work to the strengthening of your character. And in the day of salvation, you will be pleased and there will be no regrets. And all of those things that troubled you so will be remembered no more. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice, which sometimes is, oh, such a quiet whisper. Lest anyone should be pressurized. But give us ears to hear and to listen that we might know joy unspeakable and full of glory, not just in the next life, but in the life we're living now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.